This special episode is a workshop on ranked choice voting and other democracy reforms. This workshop is presented by the Green Socialist Organizing Project's 101 series of workshops. To learn more about the series, visit greensocialist.net slash 101s. everybody and uh, welcome to our latest 101 workshop from the Green Socialist Organizing Project. Uh, this month we're going to be talking about ranked choice voting and other democracy reforms. Um, ranked choice voting, we, you know, we chose that because it's kind of the buzzword in democracy reforms right now. Um, and so we definitely wanted to highlight it and it's something that the Green Party has always uh, been an advocate for, right? When we when we hear, as we are hearing right now with Cornell West announcing another, you know, the, the green primary heating up, we're already hearing from, from Democrats that now is not the time and, uh, you know, rep the, the recitation of the spoiler argument. And, um, you know, as Howie always says, Greens have a solution for the spoiler argument. It's ranked choice voting. Um, you want to stop spoilers, ranked choice voting, just implement it. You know, the Democrats have been in power and had the ability to. And have chosen not to um, and i'd say there is a tactical reason for that they want the spoiler problem to exist they want to be able to extort voters um, they want to be able to uh you know attack third parties and uh, claim that we're stealing their votes which is so nonsense but um so we wanted to talk about ranked choice voting and then expand that agenda a little tonight uh, you know talk about some other major democracy reforms things that absolutely at least in our opinion have to be paired with ranked choice voting um, if it's going to be effective. Um, so tonight we're going to be talking about ranked choice voting and other democracy reforms. Um, my name, as usual, is Chris Blankenhorn. I am the Illinois Green Party secretary and the for a former Green Party of the United States co-chair. And joining me is Garrett Wasserman, um, who is a former GPUS co-chair and uh, wearer of many hats over the years in Pennsylvania. Um, <clears throat> this, like I said at the beginning, this is a part of our recurring monthly 101 series. Um, you can learn more about them, watch past episodes, uh, see what's coming up next month at greensocialist.net slash 101s. Um, and then you can learn more about the Green Socialist Organizing Project and get involved at greensocialist.net. Uh, but without further ado, I will add the slideshow and we will, uh, get started let garrett take it yeah so hi everyone um hang on this doing a last minute <laughs> uh but hi everyone i'm garrett wasserman uh like chris said i'm a previous uh steering committee co-chair for the national green party uh and held many hats in the pennsylvania green party where i've seen uh up close a lot of the electoral issues that we'll discuss tonight um so uh, because I was working on ballot access, making sure that, uh, you know, Greens are actually appear on the ballot as someone that you could vote for in Pennsylvania. Um, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment here as part of our discussion on ranked choice. 
but as as Chris introduced, uh, it's a very important topic now. Um, you know, as the primaries uh, heat up, not just for the presidential election, but honestly for you know many different uh, every level of office. Uh, that same sort of refrain about why you shouldn't vote for greens or independents or whatever always comes up. And so uh, there's a number of responses to it, but of course, one of them that we're going to talk about tonight is uh, ranked choice voting itself, which would uh, kind of end the problem of the so-called spoiler effect uh, if done appropriately. And we'll talk about what we think it means uh, to do ranked choice appropriately, which is probably more than just changing our voting process, but we'll get to that when we get to it. So let's, move ahead here. Um, just so you have a little uh, idea of what's coming up here, uh, here's a quick outline. Uh, we'll first talk a little bit about how the U.S. electoral system works today, because uh, a lot of folks don't even necessarily know exactly how it works. I mean, people go and vote, but there's a lot of nuance and a lot of detail to it, and it can actually vary between states on exactly what the rules are and all that govern how elections work. So let's first talk about the problems of the system, and then we'll move on and we'll talk about ranked choice voting and how that solves a number of issues. We'll talk about um, how ranked choice best kind of extends to legislative bodies, which is, in our opinion, by using proportional representation. Uh, if you've not heard of that term, we'll get to it. <laughs> and then finally, we'll end with uh, some more ideas that would kind of round out that package that if we do some, some other uh, changes to our election system along with the ranked choice and with the proportional representation, we would have a very robust, you know, multi-party democracy type system. So um, we'll talk about that and, you know, what those demands look like and where we should go from there. All right. So starting off, problems of how we do elections today in the U.S. Um, the U.S. election system is... Uh, pretty complex, actually, because one of our biggest problems, uh, which is our first bullet point here, is that there is actually no one national system. There's no federal standard, actually, for how elections function. Uh, everything about elections, how people vote, how candidates get on the ballot, all that stuff is actually controlled by the states individually. And there is no federal code that says you've got to do it a particular way or anything. Um, so there can be a lot of variation in the rules and requirements for people to be able to uh, to vote, uh, as well as candidates and parties to be recognized and to, and to be on the ballot so that people can vote for them. Um, so this right here by itself all, already causes a lot of trouble uh, for a lot of elections throughout the country. Whoops, did it go forward yet? <laughs> uh, it already causes a lot of trouble for a lot of elections through the country. Um, so, uh, I think that's actually on the next slide. So let me kind of run through these points here and then we'll talk about kind of the solutions to these things. Uh, but keep that in mind that there's no federal standard. So when we talk about elections, when we talk about all of these issues going forward here, um, it varies a lot state by state. So we have to kind of tailor certain things to individual states until there is a federal standard. And frankly, that is part of our demands when we get to the end of this. Um, a lot of folks misunderstand uh, how the party primaries work, um, for, especially versus the general election. Uh, and the truth is the general election is actually the real election. It's the election in November, roughly. It depends per state and municipal elections and all that stuff. Uh, 
Uh, but roughly speaking, when you vote in November, that's the real election that determines who actually gets into office. But most states have a primary, right? You vote usually earlier in the year, you know, in spring or maybe early summer, uh, and you vote in the primary. And a lot of folks think like, oh, there's just a primary election. Um, and that's, it's kind of weird because technically speaking, that's a private uh, vote because the, the political parties, according to U.S. law and court orders and things like that, are private entities. They're not part of the government. <laughs> so those primaries actually don't follow a lot of the same rules. They actually don't even have the same protections that the general election does. <laughs> um, so you could see a lot of weirdness in how the primaries run. And of course, that really comes to a head in, in presidential election years when everyone is, is really paying attention. But um, you know, even in other years, uh, the fact that there's a separate primary process from the general election um, makes even more confusion about how the rules work. And of course, people confuse that primary as if it's a real official thing. And it's kind of not, although kind of is, just because the duopoly owns government. So of course, um, they've set rules so that the government pays for their own primary. So it's, it's in this weird quasi-public, but not really public status. Um, so we public, mentioned- Public welfare and money, basically going to <laughs> right. private- yeah. not-for-profit corporations, which is what a political yeah, party is. Right. A, a political party, including the Green Party, which, because we're legally mm -hmm. required to be this, is a 527 not-for-profit. It's a, a special political brand of not-for-profit. You don't get a tax break, but uh, we also don't pay taxes. So yeah, it's uh, <laughs> one of those areas, one of those wonderful areas of U.S. capitalism and U.S. politics where uh, the, the parties in power have um, you know, leverage the public coffers um, and public resources to maintain and, you know, and support the, the private primaries, caucuses, conventions, whatever it is in your particular state, <clears throat> you know, that, that's being paid for by the public. And one of the most egregious things about this is that because the major parties set the rules, often third parties aren't allowed to participate. Mm -hmm. um, so in Illinois, where we don't have partisan registration, uh, we have we have what's called a semi-closed system. Uh, you go in, you can't register with anybody, and you go in on your primary day and you say, "I want this party's ballot." Um, and in Illinois, in everywhere except for Cook County, uh, which is uh, the Chicago area, the Green Party does not have a primary ballot because we're not a recognized party outside of Cook County. So. Oftentimes, when I go to that spring primary, uh, which is usually in March or April, I walk in and I'd say, I, you know, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, so I almost always ask for a, uh, and I can't get a green ballot where I live, um, and I ask for a nonpartisan ballot, and often I'm turned away. Um, I'm completely disenfranchised because the only options of ballots to grab to ask for are Republican or Democrat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that happens in Pennsylvania, too, um, where you've got to register ahead of time in Pennsylvania to, uh, with a party to be able to vote in the primary. Uh, but then they do confusing things like um, there'll be voter referendums or, you know, constitutional amendments or things like that that you can vote on. And they'll they'll place that in the primary election. And so you're technically allowed to go there and ask for an independent ballot to vote on those things because everyone is allowed to vote for it. But again, because of our confusing distinction between primaries and generals and whether you got to be registered or not, like 
most of the time people don't even know. A lot of times the the vote, the poll workers themselves get confused when you ask them for an independent ballot, you know, because they're just not used to it. They're they're trained in in the in the duopoly structure, right? That's what they expect. And not to disparage poll workers who are unpaid, <laughs> no, no, no. You know, often underpaid and unpaid, but they're also often partisan. Um, you know, I live in Illinois, so we've got Chicago politics and, um, you know, they and then Garrett's in Pennsylvania, where I learned Philly gives Chicago a run for its money. Um, <laughs> you know, but in, in 2018, I believe uh, Sherry Hankala, who is the 2012 Green vice presidential candidate, was running for state house in Philadelphia. And I mean, people went to jail, right? Poll workers went to jail because of their behavior during that election. And it included things like changing the votes that were cast on paper ballots. Um, here in Illinois, we've had instances in Cook County where we are a recognized party um, where people have walked in and said, I would like a green ballot and they get handed the Democratic Party ballot on green paper. And they printed the Green Party ballot on brown paper. And they you, they did that intentionally to try to trick people so that when you came in and you asked for the green ballot, they gave you the green colored ballot unless you explicitly said you wanted the Green Party ballot, right? And this is the poll workers. Um, and some of that is probably confusion, right? They think you're asking for a color. And some of that is definitely malicious. Um, we're talking about Chicago area. This is a, you know, Democratic machine party, you know, party stronghold. So um, mm -hmm. the, the, the kind of insidiousness of the public funding of private primaries, um, you know, runs very deep from the, the theoretical level all the way down to... Uh, um, <laughs> you know, the, the actual functioning in the, of the election workers. Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess we'll move on from that, but just uh, that's an important topic that I think doesn't get talked about enough when, when uh, electoral reform comes up. Um, so when you're keeping in mind that there's no federal standard, this is the kind of thing that results that you get lots of confusion uh, with voters, with poll workers, with everybody in the system, just because it's weird. Uh, and it's intentionally not designed to be fair. <laughs> so, um, so moving on from those points, uh, the last bits that are kind of some of the most important when it comes to ranked choice are the way that we vote, the method we actually vote, which is that when you finally get your ballot, assuming it's the correct ballot and all that stuff, you're only allowed to vote for one candidate at a time. You have to pick one candidate and we count the votes using typically uh, a plurality system. Whoever has the most votes wins although some places will do runoffs with the top two candidates um, if they don't reach a certain threshold, but that's not everywhere. Um, and it's not at all for the federal elections. <laughs> and it's not for federal elections. It's, <clears throat> it's more local, you know, or state offices. Um, so in the combination of those two factors there with the plurality voting and the voting for only one candidate and all is what ends up leading to the so-called spoiler effect where people feel like they only get one vote, they got to make it count. And so they're, they're talked into this logic of, I have to vote for the lesser evil or otherwise it doesn't count. Um, so that's the, that's the kind of myth that we want to dispel and we want to put forward solutions that'll really, really deal with that uh, as we go further. Right. <laughs> yeah. And those two things also lead to the problem of, um, you know, a large portion, a large minority is unrepresented. Um, often it's a, a majority is unrepresented. 
right? If, if, the, if it's a three, three or four candidate race, oftentimes the winner won't get 40, won't get 50 percent, uh, mm-hmm. which means that the majority of the people in the district are not getting represented. <laughs> and as as one more comment to throw into this before we move on to the discussing solutions and all is that um, this often comes up, of course, in context of independent and green candidates. But this is actually even a problem in the Republican and Democratic primaries themselves. Uh, Donald Trump in 2016, there was a whole field of like 20 something Republican candidates. The first few states in the primary, Donald Trump won like 20 percent of the vote or something like that. But because of these plurality systems and um, that the electoral votes are often handed, all of the winner takes all right. Donald Trump was winning primaries with like 20% of the vote. What that means in actuality is like 80% of the Republican party actually did not vote for him. They did. They didn't choose him at least as not their first option, but he ended up becoming the nominee because of this system. So it's, so, you know, we have to keep that in mind too. I think that it's, it's, um, it's obviously hurting our ability to run independent politics, but it, it also contributes to the spoiler effect and all, but kind of, propping up a lot of these really terrible candidates because we don't have a better voting system. All right. So um, we talked a bunch about the problems. So uh, here's kind of a a list of some demands that I think we'll get into more uh, as we go. But we talked about the spoiler effect with um, um, where good candidates often get squeezed out, especially if they're independents. But like I said, even in a crowded primary, um, with the Democrats or Republicans, this can still happen. Um, the good candidates are often squeezed out for worse candidates, especially if they're the ones that have, you know, billionaire money and <laughs> all the media attention and all that stuff. Um, and that's partly because there, there's no way to indicate preferences. Uh, we only allow people to vote for one person and uh, one person only. Uh, if you had the ability to be able to express a preference, um, we'd be able to count the votes a lot differently. And um, we'd actually get a sense for how many people supported a particular candidate or not. Like I said, 80% of people did not actually vote for Donald Trump in those first few primaries. Um, So who did they prefer? And would they have preferred someone else in that list, if not their top person, instead of Trump? We don't know because we didn't ask them that. We didn't ask them to rank their preferences. Um, We just know that they didn't vote for Trump and because of the way we count things, he won. and the preference, you know, the no preferences, the vote for one, only one. Um, it, oh, I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Go ahead. I'll, it'll come back. As soon yeah, as if it comes back, feel free to jump in here. So, you know, the spoiler effect comes from a lot of this. Oh, stuff. got it. See, as oh, soon as you started speaking, you know, this only vote for one also creates what I often refer to as a negative voting culture mm-hmm. where most people in the general election in recent elections are voting against things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, large, when you look at polling, large numbers of Republicans voted for Trump because he was the Republican, not because they liked Trump, right? And the same goes for, you know, large swaths of the Democratic Party. <laughs> Even within their own internal polling, you know, Biden and Trump were not popular candidates. Clinton and Trump were not popular candidates. And so large swaths of people voted against the person they wanted to lose rather than for the person and the policies that they wanted to win. And you can see the results of that right now, right? We keep we keep electing ever increasingly, you know, rightward candidates. 
um, as the Democrats keep voting, you know, we move, we got Obama and then Biden's to the right of him and Obama itself identified as an Eisenhower Republican, right? <laughs> that, that's his self-identification as a, mm -hmm. as, as a Republican. Um, so we we see the Democratic Party and it, it's often called the ratchet effect. As the, as the Republican Party moves further and further right, the Democratic Party moves further and further right to try to capture this mythical centrist. Uh, they, they'd rather steal votes from the Democratic Party than, than you know, give progressives the policies they need to turn out. Um, and so it creates this negative voting culture, uh, which leads to absolutely horrendous um, outcomes, as we can see right now. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Um, so the spoiler effect and, and the resulting things of the ratchet effect and all that um, are definitely a major part. Um, what would you call it? Like a, 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 a negative cycle, right? That, that keeps up a terrible system uh, because people become too afraid to vote for some other uh, change. So, um, but in addition to that, you know, we talked about because there, every state has its own set of laws and all uh, this, uh, in combination with the fact that the duopoly kind of set the rules for it, it leads to ballot access hardship in most of those states where it becomes very difficult to get on the ballot. Um, maybe even sometimes in the primaries, like even if you wanted to run as a Democrat, it could still be difficult, especially to compete with um, an incumbent that has a lot of the, the party backing them and, and money and all that stuff. Um, but even outside the primaries, right, um, it tends to be very difficult as an independent or a green or, or any party, really. Um, to be able to get on the ballot because uh, the rules tend to have very high requirements of either um, signatures on a petition, which means a lot of a lot of volunteer time, or a lot of money to be able to you know pay people to do it, or just outright pay uh, the fees that are required to actually get on the ballot. Like I think it's Oklahoma; they just straight up say, "You give us like forty thousand dollars, or you're not going to be on the ballot." Yep. <laughs> and that so you know. Like the Democratic Party, they can they can easily get that from one of their billionaire donors, but the Green Party has to really work hard to raise forty thousand. It's certainly not impossible, but you know this is where we need volunteers and all to get in and to do that kind of thing. And then not to disparage Oklahoma and <laughs> the fine people of it, but when we do have forty thousand dollars in our, you know, in a Green candidate's bank account, is paying to get on the ballot in Oklahoma the best use of that money? Um, you know, or are we better off, you know, putting it into on the ground organizing or, you know, other ballot access drives? Yep, exactly. <laughs> so um, especially when you have limited resources, you know, you have to make, um, you know, the way the ballot access hardship in the system is created kind of intentionally forces you to make these tactical decisions that you shouldn't be making if we're anywhere near the democracy that we claim to be. Right. So uh, we already talked a lot about the problems of primaries. So we'll kind of skip over that one again. Um, these issues lead into also an effect that's known as gerrymandering that literally goes back to, um, uh, oh gee, is David Jerry the right name or no, I forget his name. Anyway, his last name was Jerry. <laughs> it's, uh, in the, um, in Massachusetts, I believe. So it goes back to kind of the founding of the, the country is my point here in the, in the late 1700s, early 1800s. This has been a problem that's kind of plagued U.S. elections for 200 years, where because we elect folks, one person out of each district, um, and then, you know, you have, you can only vote for one person, the spoiler effect, all this stuff on top of it. Uh, because the two parties control drawing those, those districts, drawing those maps every 10 years with the census, 
they've learned tricks to draw these maps in certain ways that kind of aggregate or, or push together certain kinds of voters, which they can kind of guess who you're going to vote for based on demographics and if you're registered with a certain party and things like that. And so that creates this, uh, this situation known as gerrymandering where you end up with uh, safe state, safe districts, essentially, right? Where like you can pretty much guarantee that uh, either a Republican or a Democrat is going to win. And very often the other party doesn't even bother to put up candidates to run because they know the other one is just going to win in a landslide. So it's it's almost like, you know, uh, gangs fighting over turf, right? <laughs> like they split up the turf and say, okay, I'm going to take this district, you take that district, and they kind of stay out of each other's districts and they, they play the whole media hype and all. Uh, but what that means is people that live in that district almost never get a choice unless there is an independent or green on the candidate, or, or I'm sorry, on the ballot, because, um, you know, it basically forces out any other party except for um, the party that's majority there. And they usually back the incumbents. They don't like primary challenges. So um, most of the time you don't end up with an actual choice. Um, there used to be an FCC standard uh, that required folks to uh, give equal airtime to uh, all the candidates and parties and things like that. And that's generally not really enforced anymore. Um, and so you end up seeing uh, really a whole lot of unfair media access and bias toward um, not just the duopoly candidates, but of course, the ones that have more connections, more money and things like that, right? The Donald Trumps and Hillary Clintons and things instead of any challengers. Um, and this, of course, really uh, weighs on independent green candidates who, who uh, you know, don't have the money to pay for TV ads or whatever it is. Um, uh, and then finally, we have the, the issue that's been brought up before of uh, electronic ballots or uh, whether we can trust our ballots or not. And in some states, um, they're they're done electronically on a machine where you don't even in Pennsylvania, this used to be the case. You wouldn't even get like a printout <laughs> of what your vote is. So like you just had to trust that the machine counted your vote correctly and who knows if it did or not. And actually, thanks to uh, a lawsuit from Jill Stein in, in uh, after the uh, 2016 election, we got paper ballots in 2020. So that was the thing that the Green Party did. It wasn't the Democrats. The Democrats actually fought the lawsuit. Uh, that was the thing the Green Party did that brought, you know, um, the ability to audit elections to Pennsylvania. Um, and that's an ongoing fight in other states too. Um, all right, so. Yeah, and to, to jump real, I've, uh, my internet froze for a second. Um, but to jump back to gerrymandering, right? The re and the results of this, in 2020, 70% of the races on the ballot nationwide were unopposed. Mm -hmm. In 2022, it was 67%, right? So two-thirds of the elections that are happening in this country, even during a um, you know, federal year, are unopposed. Um, people literally aren't running. The, 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 the districts are that rigged. Um, and my, my district in Illinois is actually, I, I think it's going to end up in, um, in textbooks, uh, because of what they did to it. But, you know, we had a, we, I live in downstate Illinois. Um, it's a, a red area, a deeply rural area. <clears throat> and we had a Republican member of the U S house and in, and when you watch the news, especially, you know, liberal leaning news. You hear a lot of uproar about the gerrymandering that is done by the Republicans. Um, but the reality is the Democrats are just as engaged in this kind of stuff. Um, and in my state, you know, a solidly blue state of Illinois, it's the, it's the Democrats that are gerrymandering. Um, 
and I absolutely don't want more Republicans. Um, but you know that doesn't uh, that doesn't change the the you know fundamentally anti-democratic uh, mm-hmm. you know actions that they are taking. And so we had a Republican member of the U.S. House. It was consistently won uh, by Republicans. You know, term after term after term. And so in 2020, when the Illinois legislature got to redraw the lines, they redrew them. The first map got sent back by the courts and said, no, 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 this is too much. Um, So they redrew them again. And my district is literally a 45 degree line that runs from St. Louis up through central Illinois. I guess I'm on, I'm mirrored. However, I would do it um, up through central Illinois. It's about 50 to 100 miles wide, and it runs for hundreds of miles through the state. It's literally a sliver that catches just enough blue city pop, you know, mid mid-sized city populations to win. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it, it was absolutely ridiculous. And when you look at Illinois, we're a solidly blue state, but it's usually 55-45 or 60-40, right? Um, when you look at our... Uh, U.S. House Representative, U.S. Re- House of Representative delegation, it's 80% Democrat, mm-hmm. right? And so they've gerrymandered those districts to such a level. And then in, on top of that, in Illinois, we've got some of the most repressive ballot access uh, laws in the country. And so if a Green wants to challenge in my very, you know, illegal, what should be a legal district, the Republicans and Democrats have to collect between 700 and 800 signatures to get on the ballot. Greens have to collect more than 15,000 that we have to double the survive challenges. So 30,000 signatures in 90 days in a largely rural district that crosses the entire center of the state in a single line, right? It's very, it's almost impossible for us to get on the ballot here. Um, and then they, so they've essentially locked it down. So only Republicans and Democrats can run without actually saying so. Um, and so before we move to the next section on, on, you know, solutions, you know, thinking about these things that we've, um, you know, talked about in this opening half hour, one thing should be painfully clear. The United States is not a democracy um, in any shape or form other than the fact that we hold elections, right? Those elections are not free and they are not open. They are not fair. Um they, you know, we are not a democracy. And I think it's also important to understand we were never intended to be a democracy. The United States is a government made by oligarchs for oligarchs, going all the way back to our finding, founding fathers. Um, right. And so when you look and, and we'll talk about other things like the U.S. Senate, which was an actively anti, which is actively democratic today and was even worse when it was founded. Right. Um, when you look at, you know, who actually was included um in who could vote right it was only white landowning males that was the original people that were included you can't call a country that has that as its foundation of democracy we were always 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 a um you know an oligarchy and people like to say you know oh one of the like the i've taken just enough political science to be dangerous line is (laughs) Um, you know, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Well, republic's a kind of democracy. It's kind of representative democracy, right? So that, that isn't the burn that, uh, that people tend to think it is. But when it comes down to it, we were never even intended to be that. Um, we were always intended to be a government for and by the wealthy, for and by the capitalist, you know, capitalist and, uh, interests. Right. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, we could talk about solutions. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to say we should probably skip this slide because I think it just summarizes all the stuff that comes next. Yeah, so let's go next. So, um, so the first and kind of major point to, to hit on here is that a lot of these issues at least begin to be resolved uh, by looking at the ways that we vote. And so if we use uh, an alternate voting method uh, like ranked choice voting, uh, it'll start to deal with things. Um, start to address these issues. Um, now, of course, there's going to be more to it than that, but we'll start there. Um, so as I kind of hinted at earlier, uh, an alternate voting method is one that allows us to give more information than just vote for one person. It allows us to express preferences in some way or another. And ranked choice voting is to do that by ranking the candidates, saying, well, this is my first preference, um, but if for some reason you know they don't have enough votes to win, then here's the second one that I'd be okay with, or here's the third one I'd be okay with. And you kind of go down in order that way. Um, so by allowing voters to, to rank uh, candidates and to express these preferences, we get around a lot of the spoiler issues and all, because when you don't have that information, <laughs> there's no way to tell who um, a voter supported. So even if you wanted to be able to say like, you know, okay, well, you know, you voted for a candidate that, um, you know, didn't get enough votes to win, um, but let's try to find a consensus candidate. Let's try to find a compromise candidate that more people agree on. There's no way to do that if you only voted for one person and they didn't win. So having this extra information about preferences is what's really important. And ranked choices is a very easy way to, to do that. Um, but it's not the only way. So just to kind of throw out there, there, there are discussions on other types of voting methods that can occur, and um, especially at the local levels, at the municipal levels, um, you know, it's highly encouraged for towns to consider alternatives, whether they're ranked choice or one of these others, uh, because, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to it in a moment here. <laughs> but uh, so uh, there are several ways to capture voter preferences, including our first uh, point here, ranked choice that we mentioned. You rank your candidates in order of preference, and if your top-ranked favorite doesn't have the votes to win, then your vote gets automatically moved. It gets automatically counted to your second favorite, or to your third, or, or however, long, however far down it's got to go, right, depending on the number of candidates, um, until there's an obvious winner. And you can already kind of see one of the benefits to that is that uh, since your votes get moved around, it tends to actually uh, elect candidates that are compromises. Uh, it tends to kind of filter out like extreme right-wing voices and things like that, right? Because people will, when they when they rank them, they're not going to put those candidates first or second or third or whatever, right? So um, even if, you know, an eco-socialist candidate that you'd prefer doesn't quite win, um, you can still kind of have a better backup, so to speak. Um, that's kind of the idea here with uh, ranked choice. Um, another option, the second point here is score voting. Which honestly, with uh, with the internet and and younger generations used to using, you know, Google and Amazon and everything, all the different ranking systems. Maybe this is actually one that'll become more common. But uh, in score voting, instead of directly ranking, saying this is my first choice, second choice, third choice, each candidate gets an independent score. You can rate them, for example, one to five stars. You can say this is a five star candidate, this is a three star candidate, this is a, oh, I really don't like that one, zero stars, right? Um, so you you uh, you express your preferences uh, in that way by um, a score, and those scores are compared uh, between the candidates, and you know the the top the candidates with the top scores come together and and they count your vote for whoever your preference is out of those, and and we pick someone, and again it it tends to uh, pick someone that's kind of the best uh, consensus candidate that 
more people tend to like, even if it isn't their top preference. And finally, a kind of a simplified version of a score voting you might hear about is approval voting, where you just kind of go in and, and check the box on all the ones that you're kind of okay with. And I, I tend to feel like that's not as expressive because you're not really giving relative information between the candidates. So I'd say probably a, a, ranked, a different ranked or score method is probably better, but, but you might hear that terminology. So I just wanted to kind of throw it in there. Um, uh, the last bit to point out about all these different voting methods is that they, they technically all have, and um, you can kind of mathematically prove this in some ways, um, they, they all have kind of benefits and they all have like corner cases where, um, you know, they, they might, uh, how would you put it? Like there might be weird cases that happen, right? Um, just like we were saying, Donald Trump only got like 20% of the primary and then ended up as the, as the nominee, right? Um, that sort of thing can happen in pretty much any voting system but it's a lot less likely. It's a lot more rare if you use any of these other versions, right? Um, compared to what we have today. So there's really no reason um, to not switch to one of these. Um, but because they have different, um, you know, uh, voters, for example, um, they might prefer one method or the other. Like I said, younger folks might be more used to um, seeing scores on things. Maybe there's a good reason to use that instead of ranked choice. Uh, ranked choice has been used a lot historically without any problems. Um, and uh, ultimately, there's really no one best method because of uh, the kind of trade-offs that are involved in how you set up your voting system. So just kind of want to throw that out there too, that um, ranked choice is probably a, a very good option for most circumstances, but it's also okay if you want to explore some other things. And communities can get together and discuss that if um, if there's a a method that might better suit their needs. Um, so to get more details into that probably requires a little bit more talking mathematics and stuff like that, that I, we don't want to get into for a one-on-one, but just throwing it out there that, you know, you'll, you'll hear people argue for one or the other and, um, you know, uh, they're all good. And, and, <laughs> you know, uh, for purposes of this presentation, we're going to stick to rank choice, uh, because it's, it's kind of conceptually simpler, but also it's historically been used a lot. Um, and it's been used um, successfully, right, for uh, hundreds of years, um, including in the modern day in many other countries. So, like, we have a lot of data that ranked choice works really well. And, it, and it's winning in the United States on the local level. Um, in 2020, the majority of places that had ranked choice voting on the ballot, um, you know, the, the majority of them won. And some of those were even proportional multi-seat district um ranked choice voting which is the real gold standard that we should be shooting for um i will say in my personal opinion we say there's no one best method but it's not approval um <laughs> <laughs> i i don't see the virtue in uh ranking but not ranking uh, you know you don't approve of every candidate um equally and uh it, it, I've, some green parties use approval and it's always been a mess um, so <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so this is kind of what we're talking about, that uh, we kind of advocate for ranked choice uh, because, uh, again, there's historical data that shows that it works. It's used contemporarily uh, successfully. There's a growing movement behind it. Um, so it's, it's a really good thing to, uh, you know, kind of focus on for, for activism work and for ed public education. Um, 
to kind of throw in some more terminology, ranked choice is sometimes known as instant runoff voting because, again, since you're expressing these preferences, uh, you're able to move votes in, uh, automatically. When you're counting ballots, you're able to move votes and, and determine who the winner is instead of having to hold a second round of elections or anything, right? So sometimes it's referred to by that term instead. Um, as I said, research has shown that uh, ranked choice uh, tends to elect more compromised candidates that um, much more broadly reflect the views of uh, voters. Um, although when it comes to legislative seats, uh, there's kind of an upgrade to this that we'll talk about in a moment. And another uh, aspect of research that's been shown is that uh, ranked choice actually tends to result in more friendly elections. And what I mean by that is the candidates themselves tend to focus more on policy when they run in ranked choice vote uh, elections because they're all fighting to get your number one vote or, okay, you know, you might choose some other candidate, but okay, I want to be your number two vote. And voters don't like it when, uh, generally speaking, don't like it when candidates go negative and go on attack against other candidates. They want to see you talk about policy and, and you know, be that kind of diplomat political leader, right, that's able to work with people and stuff like that. So that um, when you have to actually compete for votes and compete for a first or a second or a third slot on that vote, uh, it tends to encourage the candidates to, to stick to issues and policy and, and real discussion instead of uh, our current system, which is so driven by fear, right, that spoiler effect and all, it's so driven by fear that, uh, like Chris was saying earlier, uh, people tend to vote against something instead of for something. In ranked choice, you would vote for a policy because that's what the debate's about. In our current plurality system, it tends to become voting out of fear, fear that the other candidate is going to do something really scary or be really bad. Um, and so, you know, ranked choice by, by scientific research, by studies has been shown to result in more issues-based elections. So aside from the fact that we want to promote independent candidates and all, it would just really give us better elections in general. And when you think about, you know, how this, how that negative voting plays out, right, right? Like look at 2020. During 2020's election, the, the polling data showed that over 90% of Democrats supported Medicare for all. Yet they voted for a candidate that would that said he would veto it if it was passed. Right. The same goes for serious climate issues. The same goes for marijuana legalization. The same goes for humane immigration reform. Right? These are all can these are all issues that Democrats feel very strongly. But most Democratic voters voted against their own interests on those issues because they were voting against Trump. Right. Mm -hmm. So they voted they voted against Trump, which was cast as a vote for Biden. And in doing so, they voted for a candidate that was opposed to Medicare for all, a candidate that was the vice deporter in chief and is now, you know, striving for the claim of the, the new deporter in chief on immigration. You know, they, they voted for a longtime pro fossil fuels candidate. Right. We just lost Roe versus Wade. They voted for a candidate that bragged for most of his career about trying to let states overturn Roe. Right. And so when when we have and, and oftentimes, you know, people say, oh, ranked choice voting is too complicated. Um, you know, you'll, have, you'll hear arguments like that, that it's not functionally. Our, our current voting system is not functioning. Mm -hmm. Right. And we can look at, you know, not not to give any credence to the things that the stop the steal people are saying. Right. But there's a large portion of our country that doesn't trust our current election system. Um, and so it's clearly not working. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that kind of claim that, oh, ranked choice voting is too complicated, it would confuse people, um, really is, they're very empty critiques when you look at 
the reality of the voting system that we have now and it's it's mm -hmm. abject failure yep uh yeah so uh this slide just has a quick little image um because maine is one of the states that has moved to using ranked choice voting so i actually got this off the maine uh state uh department website um to give you an idea of what a ranked choice ballot vote or wait ranked choice vote ballot would look like um, so you'd have a list of candidates and it would ask you, who's your first choice? Who's your second choice? And you would fill it out appropriately. Um, the votes would all be counted. And just the general way that this would work is you would count up everyone's first choice and you'd see, I, I don't know how many candidates are here, eight or nine, right? You'd count up all of everyone's uh, first choice votes, whichever of these eight or nine candidates has the least number of votes, you'd say, okay, well, they can't win because they have the least number of votes. So you'd cut them out. And whoever voted for them as their first choice, you move all of their votes to their second choice. And then you count everything up again. And you keep doing that until you whittle it down to the one remaining candidate who wins. So it's it's pretty conceptually easy to understand uh, how this works. The, the math can get a little bit hairy, but conceptually, um, it's easy to see how this is done in a very fair way. And um, it's computer counting the ballots anyway. And it's, yeah, I... Yeah, the, and the best way to do this is to have auditable paper ballots where you run them through a machine and they're auto-counted. Um, but they're because they're on paper, you can go back and audit them if there is a concern, if there is an objection brought. Um, but, you know, it can be very rapidly counted um, by machine um, and, and do all the, the math for switching votes and all. Um, so it's pretty easy and, and, you know, people can fill out that kind of ballot. And of course, election workers are there to help you too, if that happens. So, but because of all the historical data we have on it, we know that, um, you know, folks generally don't have any issues with it, um, you know. Um, so uh, let's move on. Uh, we, we talked about ranked choice voting and some reasons why it's good and, and um, a simple example of how ranked choice voting works. Um, but this always talked about electing one person. And it turns out that when we're talking about legislatures, when we're talking about um, uh, bodies that write laws, so, you know, the House and Senate, most most states have a House and Senate, right, um, in addition to Congress. Um, when we talk about legislative bodies, we still kind of run into this issue of gerrymandering, where even if you have the ranked choice uh, and it's more policy focused, um, you know, election and you get a better, more compromised candidate and things, you're still taking a, a large district of people which could be thousands and thousands of people and reducing it down to one person and saying this one person is going to represent that district. Um, and even if that person is a pretty decent choice, there's still going to be large segments of that um, district, communities within that district that are not really well represented by that person. Even if they overall represent pretty well, still won't necessarily represent all the members of their community. Um, and there's a kind of fix to this. There's a way to uh, address that. And that's known as uh, proportional representation, in particular, if we use proportional representation with multi-member districts instead of single. So this means each district would, would elect multiple people at once instead of just a single person. And if you do it that way, then there's a greater chance that at least one of the people that gets elected is going to represent your interest. Maybe they won't all, but at least one of them is going to represent you. Um, and because of that, we can be pretty confident that um, all the communities in the district, or at least, you know, almost all of them are get at least some representation in the system, which is, of course, the goal we're going for, <laughs> that every community is heard, that every community has the ability to uh, participate and influence um, the system and the results and not just be locked out. 
of the system because they didn't get enough votes or whatever it is, right? So uh, let's talk a little bit more about the details. Oops, sorry, I hit next with you. <laughs> so um, I think I already talked about this slide a little bit. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of here. Yeah, I'll jump in on it too. Yeah, go ahead. Because the question is rank choice vote, rank choice enough. And my, as an Illinoisan, my unquestionable answer is no. Um, right. And, and the, what I tell people that advocate for rank choice and rank choice alone here in Illinois is it's not going to change anything. Um, it's not going to change anything in our in our general elections because you're only going to be able to rank a Republican and a Democrat. Our ballot access laws are as such that only Republicans and Democrats really have a serious chance of getting on the ballot in most partisan races. And so that means that when we were, you know, if Illinois were to implement ranked choice voting alone and no other, uh, you know, democracy reforms, it would basically be a veneer of legitimacy of, on a system that's still completely illegitimate. Um, so, you know, the, the answer to that is definitely, you know, no, it's not enough. And so, and, and this idea of multi-member districts is something that in Illinois, again, isn't it, it, it's definitely treated like it's radical, but we used to have it, and the mm -hmm. Democrats were who took it away. Uh, we then there were problems with our multi-member district. It wasn't the greatest of systems, but Illinois used to elect multiple members from each district, and it was in that system was abolished for a first past the vote post single member district by the Democratic Party, and they used uh, cutting the budget as a way to do it. They would they, if we have less legislators, we have to pay them less. Um, so, you know, that, that's a big part of it. So how do we, you know, what else can we do if frank choice voting isn't enough? Um, like we've said, one way to address this is to elect multiple candidates from each district. Um, and like Garrett said, that, that means it's far more likely that at least somebody will represent closer to your interests. Um, and, and it brought, it gives us a broader diversity of winners, um, that reflects the diversity of the community. There's a few ways to do it. Um, we can do single transferable vote. Um, which focuses on individual candidates or, and, you know, basically um, Maryland has this. Um, in Maryland's House of Delegates, they elect three. Um, it was cut in the 90s, Christopher Brown. Um, by, but, um, and so it's single, and Maryland has this. So in their House of Delegates, they, uh, they elect three members for each district. Um, and, and, the top three in the in the election win, uh, and what it you know while it hasn't led to a green state legislator in Maryland yet, last time we ran we made a serious run at it uh, in the Baltimore area we got fourth and fifth, right? So we were just on the cusp with both of both of our candidates, um, and that still maintains kind of the single bat the single candidate individualistic you know mindset of uh, of the election. Um, it still maintains that kind of Americanness of it. Um, to do it that way. And then there's also party lists, um, which are common elsewhere in the world where you, you vote and it counts towards a party, not just a candidate. And then the parties chooses, they've got basically, they literally have a list. And if they win 45% of the vote, they go down and 45% of their candidates are elected. Um, you know, it's the simple way to think about that. And then there's mixed member proportional, um, which combines rank choice and the party list. Uh, England does this. Um, where you vote both for a person and for a party. Um, and it, it, again, it's kind of that middle ground, right? Um, and, and yeah, so and uh, once again, like what we said earlier, there's not necessarily a best method. 
Um, there's trade-offs on all of them. And we can actually, you know, the cool thing about this is this kind of stuff is often treated like it's, you know, radical theory, but all of it's in practice, right? Here mm -hmm. in the United States, we can see multi-member districts. Here in the, and, and we can see, if we look through the history of the United States, we can see lots of iterations of ranked choice voting of multi-member districts of proportional representation. When we look around the world, we can see huge numbers of, you know, different types of proportional representation um, to, to create multi-party democracies, um, which is, you know, yeah, here, I'm going to jump goal. a couple slides ahead. Yeah. Because um, that's a point here that, uh, like Chris said, it's, it's treated as uh, this kind of theoretical thing or, you know, oh, that would never really work. But the truth is, half of the world's countries are already using some form of proportional representation. And, and we, gave, we gave a few different options. And, you know, there's legitimate debates to have over which one might be the best to use, uh, especially, you know, local level versus state level and things like that. Um, but the point is, you know, already, like, most of the world uses some form of proportional representation, which kind of by extension means some form of ranked choice voting. So, for example, most of the countries in Europe and South America use some form of party list. Uh, Germany and New Zealand uh, use uh, the mixed member proportional that we talked about. Australia uses single transferable vote. Um, so, you know, these are already being used in practice and successfully today. You know, these countries all, you know, not trying to say that they're perfect and that they can't be improved upon and reformed and things like that, but they certainly have far more robust multi-party democratic systems than the U.S. does. <laughs> so we know in practice that this works pretty well. And so we could do at least as good as them. And if we're advocating for the right reforms, we can we can even, you know, have a much better democracy than what they're talking about. And the interesting thing like Chris was uh, was hitting on here is that the U.S. itself used to use proportional representation in many places, especially at the local level. Uh, it actually, you know, this isn't wouldn't even be new to the U.S. Um, proportional and it representation. came about because they were people, the people we're trying to stop party bosses from running things, right? And it's, yep, it's the exact exactly. same dynamic we have right now, right? Uh -huh. That, that in a, a century ago led to a, a growth of proportional representation and, and uh, single transferable votes and different voting systems. And then the, the success of it, of re electing representative, you know, um, representatives, then led to the backlash where, uh, you know, those with power realized this is actually a threat, right? <laughs> if, if we're using these systems, um, we, we don't have, it's not as easy for us to control things. It's not as easy for, you know, us to, us, us to maintain the oligarchy. Um, and so we saw, you know, a pushback and even getting into federal law. Um, so it, it's, the history of this type of voting in the United States is, is you know, historical proof that the things that advocates say will happen, happen. Um, and yeah. that's, that's literally why we don't have it anymore. Um, yeah, we, we partly ended up, we partly ended up with this system of primaries and things because uh, the, the folks in power realized that they could control primaries but they could kind of wave it out there as a carrot, like, oh, we'll just give you more say in our primary process. Just go along with that. Because to them, they could control that a lot better than they could rank choice and proportional voting. Um, so, you know, um, and then they use things like the Red Scare, you know, fear of socialism and communism and things in order to try to convince people that it was better to have a primary system than it was to have this. Um, but there's no reason that we can't do it 
again, um, and in fact, we should take some inspiration from history about how uh, proportional representation was put into place in a lot of cities throughout the U.S. Um, and it's particularly happened in kind of like heavily unionized towns, you know, along the Rust Belt and things like that, uh, where you would have community movements that would use um, ballot initiatives, ballot referendums in order to force this issue, force it on the ballot and force um, the change the laws necessary to create proportional representation because they knew that the party bosses weren't going to allow them to, uh, you know, to put forward their own candidates and have a chance at winning. And they did that. They were successful at the referendums that got it in place. And by using proportional representation, this, this goes back to the late 1800s and all. When they got it in place, some of the first, uh, you know, women and black people and all that were elected in U.S. history were elected before they even technically had the right to vote under this ridiculous system. They were elected because the communities voted for them in proportional systems, and they were allowed to win because those proportional systems actually create better democracy. They actually reflect the communities. They actually, you know, reflect our interests as opposed to, you know, the the duopoly, plurality, you know, one vote system and all that that we have in place today. So we know that this works. Um, and we could we can use that as kind of a template of, of how we can try to drive it forward today um, to get it back in place and to get it expanded much more than uh, what happened at that time period. And it was also the heyday of an actual left in this country, right? Um, the, the, the destruction of ranked choice voting and proportional systems is, is a small, probably a small part of, you know, the repression of the left in the United States, uh, the Red Scare and all that kind of stuff that's mentioned on the slide is obviously that, you know, a huge, a huge part of it, um, you know, but this system also allowed the left to be elected, it allowed socialists <laughs> to be elected into power. And when they were is when we saw a lot of the massive labor reforms, um, mm -hmm. improvements of working conditions, you know, a lot of our basic, you know, yep. uh, human rights laws. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, came out of this time, and, and that was possible because a more, you know, representative government was mm -hmm. elected. And you could see residue of this still in a few cities, like Minneapolis still today uses ranked choice. And that's that's kind of a, a relic from this era that community movements got that put in place. So, you know, again, we should look to history here to try to give us some ideas on how we can organize for this change in the future, because we know that you know the the duopoly and the powerful are going to resist us on this stuff so you know that's that's a way to drive forward um at the grassroots levels um all right so you want me to take further yeah let's see um oh there was one slide i skipped over that i want to talk about real fast and then you can do that <laughs> um yeah so um i i skipped because i wanted to talk about pr being used around the world um, but, you know, I, to kind of come back to this point real quick, <clears throat> the single member districts um, allow drawing of districts, drawing the maps, deciding who's in what district in a way that kind of um, enforces uh, one party or another to be in charge of that district. And proportional representation does away with that, especially if we're using these multi-member districts, because <laughs> guess what? When it's when it's only one winner. Um, you could very easily say like, okay, well, you know, I want the Democrat to be the winner or I want the Republican to be the winner. And so you, you tweak your districts and all to put more Democrat voters in there or more Republican voters or whatever, right? When there's multiple winners, um, and in particular, there's multiple winners that are encouraged to be more 
broadly representative of the community. So you're going to get more of a, um, a spectrum of opinions, right, of the people who win that election. That becomes much, much harder to actually do any kind of gerrymandering, um, to, to be able to kind of determine um, who's going to win, because it's not just one person, it's multiple people. And as Chris was saying, you know, a lot of this gerrymandering happens in states where like in, in blue states, Illinois, Maryland, and things like that, it's like a 60-40 split, 60% Democrats, 40% Republicans, but they, they do the district so mostly Democrats win. In the so-called red states, Texas and Florida and all, they do the opposite. Uh, there's Democrat voters in, in Florida and Texas. And I, I think like in Texas, I think they are like 40% of the vote. It's Texas is not like all Republicans. They're not all cowboys, pew, pew, pew. You know, like <laughs> that's kind of the image that they want us to have. Uh, but that's not actually true. They do the same gerrymandering tactics there. So, uh, and they could do that when there's only one winner and there's that kind of close bar between them. But when there's multiple winners in that close bar, you're not going to be able to force a single person to win. You're going to have a spectrum. You're going to get more um, people elected that are going to better represent the community. So um, because of these uh, um, properties of proportional representation, it allows us to essentially eliminate gerrymandering. Um, and I think if you do some other reforms about making sure there's a independent uh, committee that kind of sets these districts, um, or they call them super districts yeah. because um, you elect more than one person from it. We've got that in our next section for so, sure. Yeah. But yeah. And I think it's important to remember too, you know, that like on issues like gerrymandering, the Republicans and Democrats, right? The, the, the major parties, the capitalist parties are in competition with one another. Um, but in other areas of this, you know, of this issue, they are in, they're collaborating. Right. Mm -hmm. When it comes to repressive ballot access reforms, even if it's passed by a Democratic majority, the Republicans aren't complaining. Right. Mm -hmm. The Republicans aren't complaining about locking out the, the libertarians. Um, and, and so it, it's important to understand that while there are these, you know, kind of niche alcoves where they're in competition, like in gerrymandering, overall, the maintenance and the upholding of our anti-democratic election system in the United States is a bipartisan affair. Um, hand in hand, the two parties are making sure that there is no change that threatens what we have now, uh, because what we have now is what creates mm -hmm. and sustains them. Um, so, you know, despite, you know, the, despite the fact that this kind of stuff is, you know, especially in the media and is really stoked as partisan, you know, fighting, um, when you actually start looking across the spectrum of democracy issues, what you find is that uh, they're often very much in tandem and working together. Mm -hmm. Uh, to make sure that they are the only choices. So we need to change how we vote, right? We've, we've covered that. We need to first pass the post. Single member districts is a failed electoral system. We, have, we live in a failed state that was brought to us by a failed electoral system. Um, so we, you know, we've talked about we need a different way to vote. We need ranked choice voting star if you're have bad opinions on this approval, right? But uh, we need a different voting system, but we also need to change the way that, you know, how we elect people into our legislatures. We need multi-member um, proportional representation districts, but it doesn't just stop there, right? We've talked, we've mentioned ballot access a few times. Um, ballot access is the laws that govern how candidates and parties get listed on a ballot. So how you can even be voted for and actually appear. Um, it usually requires collecting, uh, a number of signatures that can that varies widely right we have 50 plus election systems in our country and that's on purpose 
right? Because it makes it hard. When you're the Republicans in the Democratic Party and you got billions of dollars, you can you can organize around that. You can pay your way around that complication. But when you're the Green Party, it means on our shoestring budget, we technically have to run 50 different ballot access campaigns with different standards, different rules, different timelines. Um, there are states like uh, like Ohio that they could start petitioning in January, I believe, of 2023, and they petitioned into well into 2024. And then there's states like New York where they have to collect 45,000 signatures in 42 days. Right? It's a sprint. Um, and so, it, it, and and when you know, bringing up that New York thing, it's the worst in the world. Um, you know, when you look at other countries, when you look at countries in Europe, we're talking a few dozen to a few hundred signatures are required to run for office, uh, not tens of thousands. Um, that's just unheard of. Um, and New York's is worse, even worse than Russia is another one of the bad countries for ballot access. And the, the New York's is worse. Um, and, you know, like I said, you, you, like I said, you need in a lot of proportional representation countries, you just need a few dozen. A hundred signatures gets you on the ballot for their their version of Congress, right? Their parliamentary elections. So we absolutely need better, better ballot access standards. They need to, and not only do they need to, you know, obviously places like Illinois and New York, they need to be improved. And in New York, they've got a lawsuit going with the, um, with the Libertarian Party to change it. Um, and that New York law, during COVID, the Democrats attached a ballot access bill that tripled the signature requirement during COVID. They snuck it in attached to another bill that was essential to pass during a during a national uh, pandemic and emergency right so very underhanded um so we need not only do we need to improve these numbers to bring them to reasonable levels that people can actually achieve and get on the ballot and then have a you know a wider diversity of voices in our elections um but we need it to be standardized um we need so the same and one thing i've always said we need the same election laws in every state and one thing i've always said is someone who's studied like empirical analysis and, and data analysis our elections are illegitimate when you have 51 50 plus i guess i won't say 51 because uh while they get to vote for president the you know people in dc people in puerto rico they don't get to you know be represented in congress um, but we have, you know, when every state is different, when every state has different conditions, you can't compare those numbers. And we just take them all and throw them into a bucket and say it's done. Um, but it completely delegitimizes the data uh, for any you know, basic level of how you should deal with data. Um, the last bill for this, and probably the best, was Representative John Connor's Fair Election Act. Uh, it said the candidate maximum petition signature was 1,000 signatures or one. 0.1% in the previous election, whichever is greater. Um, the party vote required the party vote required for a party to obtain ballot access was 20,000 votes statewide, or 1% of the votes cast. If if 1% the line, Greens get, um, you know, get ballot access, get recognition in almost every state, most elections, right? That that's a threshold we pass most of the time, um, and th those thresholds are far lower than even um, even you know moderate states like Pennsylvania, where it's 5,000 signatures to get on for, for president, or, you know, other states are only 1,000 or are based off uh, of voter registration. Like uh, Delaware has to maintain a, a minimum number of voter, of registered Greens to stay on the ballot. Um, but we need fair ballot access standards. So that brings us to this next piece um, that greatly expands the kind of democracy 
demands we're making. Um, these demands came out of, were published by Howie Hawkins after the 2020 campaign. Um, there's a link down there, howiehawkins.us slash democracy dash demands. And you can read more into each one of these. Um, but it starts off with a right to vote amendment to the Constitution. Right now, there is not a, a constitutionally enshrined right to vote. Um, you know, there are bits and pieces that might apply the right uh, here and there, but there is no universal right to vote um, in our government. And it's why this kind of stuff is legal, right? It's why Republicans can kick people off the ballot or, or can kick people out of the voter rolls. It's why Democrats can kick parties off the ballot. Um, the fact that it's not constitutionally protected, that it's not enshrined, you know, in the foundation of our, and, and again, it's not enshrined because we were never meant to be a democracy. We are a, an oligarchy by design. Um, so if we want to change that, we need to enshrine it and get a, a you know, a, a right to vote amendment in the constitution that, that guarantees everyone gets to vote. Um, similarly with, you know, revoking, uh, felons right to vote. You know, that, that, that's another example of how we're disenfranchising people. Um, we need a nonpartisan election administration. The FEC is appointed by the, you know, the government. Um, it is Republicans and Democrats. They often have this kind of deal going, right, where they keep it balanced. Um, and then those people, because they're, they're, they're nominated and, and appointed by the status quo, they protect the status quo. Um, and in 2020... The Federal Election Commission didn't have quorum. Uh, the Trump administration did not appoint enough people. So when the Howie Hawkins campaign had questions, they couldn't give us a official answer. Um, they, they literally were not able to answer in any way that was binding because they didn't have quorum. They didn't have enough members. Um, we, need, we just said we need fair ballot access standard. We've talked about proportional representation. Um, I'm actually going to skip this one to come to it at the end, but um, we need to abolish the Electoral College. Um, we need to elect the president via a national ranked choice popular vote. Um, the majority, you know, recent Republican uh, presidential winners have not won the popular vote. Um, it, it's been a, a formula of the Electoral College that has determined, um, you know, that a, a minority candidate actually won. Um, we, and we need public financing of elections. Um, we, we really need to get money out of politics. It, it's rotting it to its core and uh, it's rotting an already rotten system. So it's, you know, it's kind of like exponentially making the problem worse. Um, and then the more, you know, the more controversial one at number five that I skipped, we need to abolish the U.S. Senate um, as we know it. The U.S. Senate is a democratic defiance of the theory of one person, one vote. Um, when we provide, when we give each state two representatives, that means that the, that small, often Republican-leaning states uh, get way more power in the U.S. Senate based on populations. Whereas large states like California, or even large states like Texas, which, as Garrett said, is not 100% Republican, despite what they would like you to think. Um, you know, they get way over, they get underpowered because uh, the, their votes per senator is, is, you know, in the tens of millions, as opposed to uh, Wyoming's votes per senator, which is a few hundred thousand for each. Um, and so we really need to abolish the Electoral College. And again, this is something the Democrats could have done. 
right? This is something they could move on if they actually wanted to move on on serious democracy reforms. But they're not interested in serious democracy reforms. They're interested in maintaining a system that will keep them in power and providing whatever veneers they need to to maintain its legitimacy with their own base. Um, so we need to do that. But then, you know, we need to, this, like I said, the Senate, the, the two votes. And then if you look at the founding of the Senate, the people didn't originally vote for the Senate, right? The Senate was literally intended to be a blocker against the people having too much influence over those in power and the, the wealthy and, and the elites. That was the intention of the Senate. And they didn't, they said it out loud, right? When you, when you read it, it's the Senate's intent, its purpose was to make sure the people didn't get too much power over the elites that were already running things. Um, and so, you know, that's that's probably one of the more controversial things that how we campaigned <laughs> on in 2020. Um, it always got a good discussion going. But when you actually think about the Senate and its role, um, it is nothing but a, you know, kind of a conservative status quo anchor um, holding us back. And it needs to be abolished if we want to, you know, continue to just like the House of Lords in England. Right. Where it's just lifetime appointments based on your hair, on, on your who your parents are. Um, you know, it, it's if we want to make claims to be a democracy, if we want to move towards, uh, you know, realizing an actual democracy in this country, the Senate cannot remain. It's uh, to kind of add on that real fast. Uh, it's all over the Federalist Papers. If you read like the how, uh, you know, many of the the founders, the oligarchs that founded the country, set up this system, advocated this system, uh, were afraid of genuine democracy, and they put all of these things in there, such as the Senate, specifically to overturn the will of the people. Um, and so, you know, Chris is definitely not exaggerating there. Like they literally wrote down that was the purpose of it to to not be a democracy. Um, and slowly over time, we've made reforms such as the senators were not originally elected by the people. They were appointed. Um, an amendment later came that to where now we do elect the senators, but it's still an unfair system because of, of the fact it's not really proportional, right? Uh, it, it overweights certain states over others, uh, which, you know, does go in the face of that idea of one person, one vote, especially for, you know, national issues that affect all of us not just the people in one state. And then um, you throw in the filibuster, right? <clears throat> you have to have a super majority of 60 to actually pass anything. Um, and then, you know, the Senate just becomes more and more anti-democratic the more you learn about it. So kind of, you know, closing up with some clearly needed reforms, um, right choice voting or another method if we desire, we have to change the way we vote. Um, we have to change the methodology of how those votes are you know counted and how they represent preferences instead of a first past the post you know choose who you don't want to vote against someone that we have now um, we need proportional representation of some form um, whether that be multi-member districts or whatever we want to you know decide as greens to advocate um, you know single vote single voter single member districts is not a democratic uh, you know, system it's a system that that active it's majority rule not democracy right um, and often it's plurality rule not democracy um, it it leaves a large portion of the voting uh, body the unrepresented and that's that's not a very democratic system uh, we need fair and equitable everything 
<laughs> right? Whether it's ballot access, media access, fund, you know, campaign finance reform, all of that. Um, you know, when you when you start really start looking at our, our electoral system and our uh, political system in the United States, it becomes very quick, very obvious, very, very clear, very quickly uh, that n almost nothing about it is fair or equitable. Um, and some of these, you know, some of this stuff we can begin at the municipal level. Um, and a lot of that fight at the municipal level is how we prove it, right? Mm -hmm. When we when we read and, and in the past, ranked choice voting rose from below. Um, so when, when and it's rising from below again, like I said, in 2020, the big winner was ranked choice voting. Um, it won most of the places it was on the ballot. We've seen a large expansion in the last decade of ranked choice voting at the local level. And when those systems succeed, it provides us evidence. It provides us weight. It provides us voters who are used to it and want it in their in the federal elections and the state elections um, that will get involved in movements to push. So. You know, some of this stuff we can start at the local level. We can push via ballot, ballot initiative, and referendums uh, to force the issue in, in states that we can. In Illinois, unfortunately, we have non-binding resolutions and ballot initiatives. So, you know, it, it's like in sixty-something percent in twenty fourteen voted for um, raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. Uh, but we just we won't actually hit fifteen dollars an hour until 2016, right? So 12 years later is when it's going to take from when the public actually said that they wanted it. That's how slow even a deep blue system is at providing these basic things, um, you know. So we can really push for this, start pushing for this stuff at the local level, um, and where, where we can, we can force the issue um, by having you know ballot initiatives and referendums. Um, can we, you know, should our demands demand stop there, right? We're talking, the reforms we're talking about now, while the major are still maintaining kind of this top-down governmental system, right? This government from above, even even if it's representative, it's just government from above. Um, so we, we can look, think about the ideas of representative and delegative systems, um, you know, representative systems what we have now, uh, claims to make decisions by creating laws on its own without your active participation. Uh, delegative systems are more administrative, and they're ex they're ex expected to carry out decisions made by the communities. Um, you can still represent delegate, elect delegates with RCV, PR, and all of that, but it, it, they become less lawmakers and more, uh, you know, bureaucrats that are carrying out the will of of public referendums on issues, for example. Um, so what does that look like? Um, it means the community makes their own decisions by democratic grassroots participatory processes. Um, they, and then they elect people to carry out those decisions and manage the projects. Uh, we can you know, begin to replace representative systems with delegative systems by creating neighborhood assemblies or citizens' assemblies. Um, the assemblies at this point will probably start out as advocacy groups and mutual aid organizations. Um, but they can grow to the point that um, we can convert municipal government to be guided by these legislative or these um, you know municipal assemblies and then um, grant them more and more official power because they are more democratic right they are the people actually advocating in their own communities what they want in their community um, and then those assemblies can, can, can form confederations where delegates from each assembly meet to discuss issues, coordinate projects, right? And we can we can have this bottom up, um, but still kind of 
harness the um, harness the the economies of scale that you get by operating systems on a large on a higher level. Um, yep. the, the, there's a link there that you can uh, uh, when we put once this is on this is over we'll put the the slideshow deck on YouTube and you'll be able to go and and read about a guide of how to create a, a citizens assembly. Yeah, that, that guide is a nice short introduction to creating a citizens assembly. And, um, you know, I think, you know, I, any movement kind of has a list of short-term demands as well as long-term demands. And so this is kind of the long-term version that we, we think about uh, while we're still advocating for short-term uh, changes that'll, that'll help us. Um, but I, I think it's important to really emphasize that since this is uh, a one-on-one series with the Green Socialist Organizing Project, that we talk about what socialism in practice really looks like. And uh, I don't think socialism is this top-down representative structure where they're making uh, certain groups of people are making decisions for us, which is what happens. Even if we do rank choice voting and uh, proportional representation and um, you know fair ballot access and all the things we've discussed, even if we've done all that, we're still on some level trusting a small group of people to kind of go and make the laws, make decisions for us, right? And, you know, there's there's all the, the quips through history of, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely and, you know, all that whatever. Um, you know, having power kind of kind of corrupts. Having that power um, kind of necessitates that um, uh, you have a system that's not fully democratic, that's not fully listening to, to the people, even if it's better than what we have today. Um, so I, I think it's very important to emphasize that, you know, an eco-socialist future is moving towards something that uh, has this more bottom-up structure where um, uh, communities themselves um, are the ones that have the power, and not lawmakers in the federal government that are the, kind of the top level, um, but instead at the bottom level is where our decisions are made and where we come together and we, uh, we cooperate. And of course, that's going to mean that we're going to have um, networks or federations or whatever it is you want to call it, where our communities work together in states or the federal government, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, so we're going to work together. We're going to elect people that go and meet together and come up with ideas and all. But the important thing is that they're accountable, that they come back and they talk to communities about what they're going to do. And it's the people in the communities that make the decisions, as opposed to the folks that go off to D.C. and, the, and no one ever hears them. And they just they just say, well, we made a law and we didn't tell you about it, except now now you have to do it. Right. Um, it's very fundamentally different to flip that top down script and instead make a bottom up government. So. Whenever we're advocating for things, we should always think about how we can best um, move in that direction to make things much more directly participatory, democratic from the bottom up. Yeah, and we have a question from Christopher Tide. Oh, I'm clicking. I'm sending the slides crazy. Um, we have a question from uh, Christopher Titus, Mark Vanderwall Brown, and it says, how would you address the long-term standing problem that changing the Senate structure to a purely population-based would create a disproportionate power for large states, despite the unique needs of individual states, such as where smaller states might have a specific need, such as funding that would be potentially overridden by purely proportional representation. Um, what we were just talking about is the answer to that, right? How do we solve that problem? By shift, by, by flipping the way that our, the power moves in our government from top down to bottom up. Um, when you move to that bottom up and kind of, to kind of think of when you move to that bottom up and the government becomes more delegative, 
rather than represented, you know, rather than legislative. Um, that means that when everyone sends their budget and, uh, you know, Wyoming says we really need help with this issue and requests funding for it, um, they aren't overridden. They're, you know, the funding is the, then the goal of the, the government that's been, the representative government that's been elected in that delegative system is to find, create, to find the funding. Right, is to levy the taxes necessary to make the change, you know, cuts wherever necessary, but to find that funding. And when we move it from bottom up, when we give community control, um, I think is the real key word there. When we give community control um, of our government to the people and we move to that bottom up system, then we kind of get away from this idea because kind of what Christopher Titus, Mark Vanderwall, Brown has said is that majority rule is still in play. Right when we, when without changing that that the direction of within which, from which power flows, um, we don't change the fact that it's still majority rule. When we move it to bottom up, when we fundamentally change the system in that way, um, now all of a sudden, it's not about you know splitting up the pie uh, in the same way that it is anymore. Um, it's about how many pies do we need to bake, um, you know, as a, a way to think of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think kind of uh, two things to add in there. Uh, one to kind of riff on that concept is, um, you know, uh, we wouldn't just get rid of the Senate and then just have the House as it exists today, right? It would be a proportional system uh, to create a House uh, or, you know, Congress would just be the House in a sense, right? And it would be set up in this proportional method. And like we were saying, that move to proportional methods with multi-member districts and all, is is shown with research and real world experience that it represents smaller communities way better like they actually get true representation and, and an ability to participate that they don't have under the current system so in some sense that argument for we need a senate to make sure they have a representation uh doesn't matter when they have representation through proportional representation right um in that sort of system and make sure that the smaller communities still have that representation within the system so that's one answer, right? That they're still they still have you know their delegate, uh, you know in in the in the system. But then the uh, the other half of it is like Chris is saying that when we switch from a top down role, where yeah the majority of Congress makes a decision, and if and if you're a small group of people, then you don't matter to them. Yeah, that's a real issue, but that's a real issue we have right now too. When again, when you make it that more bottom up version, where you're taking issues uh, to communities, the communities are making those decisions. Um, you're flipping that script and it's it's no longer people at the top that are denying you it's people at the bottom getting together and finding answers and then working within that administrative structure to find the resources to find the labor to find you know whatever is necessary in order to make that happen and if you want to see kind of an example of what we could do with this sort of thing is on the greensocialist.net website we have for example um yeah there's stuff about it we have for example a plan for a national health service when we say a national health service it has to be national. It has to be federal in some sense because we have to guarantee health care to everyone. Everyone, whatever state, town, whatever you live in, everyone has to have it. So the funding and a lot of the administrative, administrative stuff has to happen at a national federal level. But in our plan, that funding and all is controlled by communities. It's, it's controlled by the local uh, people themselves. Right. They get their funding and they control their hospital. They control, you know, the doctors are involved in the workplace and they're making the decisions instead of Congress people or whatever. 
So it's, it's again, flipping that bottom up where, yeah, a lot of our funding administrative stuff happens at the top level because that makes it more efficient. That makes sure that we can guarantee the rights to everyone. But the day-to-day -day control and, and the, you know, the super important decisions and all get pushed down to the local levels. That's where it happens. And that makes sure that no one's left out, that communities can put together their budget and they can control their hospital in a way that, that fulfills their unique special needs. It's not dictated from the top, right? So um, that's just one example in, in the healthcare industry, but of course, you know, some sort of bottom-up structure like that would happen in, in all the areas of the economy and politics and stuff. Yeah, and so kind of to close out, you know, um, I think this is a really important issue for Greens to be engaged on. Um, you know, we, we called this ranked choice voting and other democracy reforms because ranked choice voting is the buzzword, right? All through progressive politics, you know, right now, ranked choice voting is getting a big push. Um, but the fact is ranked choice voting alone isn't enough. Um, ranked choice, and, and the rank and file progressives, I think, are coming from the right place. They want a more democratic system. Um, but a lot of the, you know, institutional leadership that will get behind it, a lot of the organizations that will get behind it um, are primarily looking to, you know, kind of push back against very, very legitimate concerns about the health of our, of our, you know, electoral system. Um, that they want to provide kind of, like I said earlier, veneers of legitimacy. Um, they don't actually, they aren't actually seeking to empower the popular, you know, the, the people. They aren't exactly seeking to fundamentally change how our, our electoral system and our democracy works or lack thereof presently works. Um, and so this is a super important area for Greens and independent socialists to get involved in, right? Um, when we when we meet people talking about ranked choice voting, we we always you know you need to ask, okay, so where are you at on ballot access reform? Because um, I can tell you from having asked that question to you know major organizations like Fair Vote, they've literally told us in Illinois, not with you, we're not there, we're not going to push for ballot access reform, which means their ranked choice voting will only allow you to rank Democrats and Republicans, and to their democratic aligned leadership, that's just fine, um, right? And so it's really important that we get involved in these things, that we push the the envelope on what we're demanding, right? Um, especially when we get involved in, you know, with all these front, you know, issue organizations that are aligned with the Democratic Party. When you actually start looking at their demands, you find out they're really milk toast most of the time, right? They're like, that's the bare minimum we could ask for. Um, and that's what they're starting with. And you never start a negotiation asking for the bare minimum that you would accept, right? You, you shoot for the stars and expect to be whittled down. Um, and so when, when Greens and, and independent socialists get involved in their communities and start talking about democracy, we need to be the voice for a real robust democracy, for a bottom-up democracy, for proportional representation, for multi-member districts, right? We need to do what we can to shift the conversation in our own communities around this. Um, so, you know, that's kind of why we decided to do this, um, do this today. Um, we will be back next month on the fourth Tuesday, as always. Uh, these 101 series are always on the fourth Tuesday of the month at 8 p.m. Eastern, um, streaming on uh, Howie Hawkins' Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, um, as well as a couple other places. Um, so come back and join us. Uh, check out greensocialist.net slash 101s. Uh, to, to watch these past issues, to see uh, 
to look at slideshows to see what's coming up and uh, to get involved in, in our work. So with that, uh, we only went an hour and a half instead of an hour this time. So we're getting shorter. Um, thank <laughs> you very great. much, everybody. Thank you, Garrett. And uh, we'll see you next month. Bye, everyone. We got power, love.